Live from New York City. We have Tom Cligan, the Canadian intelligence expert, which will be on our first top of the hour. And then we'll be joined by the op ed editor at Middle East Forum fellow, Seth Fransman, a wonderful guest that I'm really looking forward to interview. But to start, we have to get to the news that's going on here in New York City and in Washington, D.C. As you hear the sirens blaring, we now have the resignation of Nikki Haley, the United States ambassador to the United Nations, effective October 3rd, prior to the Kavanaugh hearings, which took place in his vote, but only announced yesterday in the Oval Office at 10.30 a.m. And I think that this is a particularly poignant moment for an analysis of Trump's foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis the United Nations and also looking at the actions that Haley herself was responsible for, especially as it touches on American Middle East policy. Nikki Haley started her career as a member of the South Carolina legislature, quickly making her way through South Carolinian politics to become governor of the state. Only four days after Trump was sworn in, she was one of the first officials which was nominated and approved by the United States Senate with a vast majority. Now, we also see that the ability for Haley to um, transition from state-level politics, not to the national stage, but to the international stage, brings us to the point where we had a well-groomed uh, politician go into the position of one of America's top diplomats, representing our interests in Turtle Bay, the headquarters of the United Nations. She first started with an analysis of what had been taken up by the previous administration under President Barack Obama, quickly identifying certain diplomatic missions that she would enact. The first was withdrawing the United States from the vaunted United Nations Education, Science, and Cultural Organization, an organization which was very noble upon its founding, but has recently been subject to the whim of politics by Arab autocrats and Middle Eastern dictators. She then made the move to withdraw the United States from the United Nations Human Rights Council, which it had rejoined, which the United States had rejoined back in the Obama administration, but was consistently used as a cudgel against United States interests, specifically in the Middle East, in the way it acted in Afghanistan and in Iraq, and also against U.S. allies like Israel. And then we also saw probably her coup d'etat, well, not the coup d'etat per se, but, but the creme de la creme of what she was able to do with diplomatic policy by shepherding, along with Mike Pompeo and John Bolton, the Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, the U.S.'s withdrawal from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran deal. Every action that Ambassador Haley took in the United Nations was to promote American interests. She was also seen as a weather vane, a, a, a keel, an even keel, of U.S. policy in that international forum. And I believe, at least from this program, that she will be sorely missed. There's already talk of who her replacement will be, perhaps the U.S. ambassador to Germany, a seasoned United Nations veteran and former, uh, I, I believe, a deputy ambassador to the United Nations, and also Dina Powell, the former deputy national security advisor, head of corporate social responsibility at Goldman Sachs, 
and in addition to that, an assistant secretary of state during the, Obama, during the Bush administration. Both uh, venerable candidates, and we'll see who replaces Ambassador Haley when she leaves at the end of this calendar year, fulfilling her two-year commitment that she gave to President Trump. Now, moving on to another issue, which is something I really wanted to be able to talk about this week, which was a report that came out from the Middle East Forum in, uh, uh, I believe, Thursday or Friday of last week, as soon as the tally of uh, gifts that came in to candidates for elected office, especially on the federal level, was compiled by our own Islamist watch, Dr. Orrin Litwin. There was a press release we put out titled, Keith Ellison and Michigan Candidates Top the 2017-18 Islamist Money List. For the last four years, three of our researchers, David Swindle, Orrin Litwin, and David Russin, have been combing through federal elections commission and state election commission databases, comparing the amount of money going to candidates running for office versus the Islamists that we are aware of are active in the United States and seeing exactly which candidates are being supported by which Islamists that are active in American politics. Where our list for this year that came out, and, and this list comes out every um, two election cycles, the, the number one winner of the most amount of money that came in was Hillary Clinton in her presidential bid in 2016. And this year, it actually is not a federal candidate but a gubernatorial candidate that was able to raise the most amount of money from American Islamists. Now, before we get into the numbers, we have to ask ourselves, why would the Middle East Forum and Islamist Watch be interested in tracking campaign donations? There's a correlation that exists between Islamists who are trying to influence the American political cycle uh, with the thought process that if they give money to candidates, those candidates are more likely to listen and then potentially implement the policies that they are calling for. Now, I'm not speaking about any one American Islamist in general. This could be anyone from ICNA, from CARE, from the Islamic S Society of North America. But in general, we find that the positions that these folks are trying to influence our politicians on, whether it be through hook or by crook, and in, in this case, in terms of giving them political contributions, are anathema to American values. If there is an individual trying to push for the allowance of female genital mutilation, or what they call, a, uh, and by them, I mean just, just in general, some Islamists who are in favor of this practice, a way in which to uh, have a religious ceremony, as it's been called in a Michigan case, which is actually just abuse of a child, then that individual may, may give money to a candidate who would then pass a bill saying, or introduce a bill saying, you know what, FGM, it's not such a bad thing. But I think that our listenership knows how that's counterintuitive to that. So back to the list. Michigan politics dominates the list. The failed Democratic gubernatorial candidate, Abdul El Saeed, raised an impressive $80,400, the most ever in a single election cycle since IMIP, Islamist Money and Politics, began tracking these donations in 2014. This includes $58,000 from senior officials of the Council on American Islamic Relations, CARE, designated a terrorist organization by the United Arab Emirates. And number two, a, uh, also, also a state list I see here running for Minnesota's attorney general spot, but currently serving as the vice chair of the Democratic National Committee and a member of Congress from Minnesota, we have Representative Keith Ellison. 
Long and Islamist money favorite with a lifetime total of $227,000-some-odd dollars in contributions. Ellison has raked in $28,000 from Islamists this cycle in his bid, like we said beforehand, to become Minnesota's attorney general. However, he is facing domestic abuse allegations from his former partner that he was with for many years. Also on top of the list, an individual who's guaranteed to go to Congress, Rashida Tlaib, who won a 13th congressional district primary in Michigan, leveraging some $27,000 in Islamist money from across the United States to outspend her opponents by almost two to one. All three of these individuals, Saeed, Ellison, and Tlaib, have close ties to Islamist groups, signaling the Islamist lobby's affections and intentions as they seek to influence U.S. policy. And just a uh, follow-up note here on the project itself, Islamist money in politics shines a light on Islamist influence in U.S. politics. To date, it has uncovered some 6,078 contributions to American politicians seeking higher office. More so, it has uncovered $2.8 million from those 6,078 contributions. And while the amounts are small, they provide valuable information on Islamist political goals and strategy, allowing friends of the Constitution, like us, to counter their efforts. After these messages, we'll be joined by Tom Quiggin. Fascism was the danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. We're back on Middle East Forum Century Radio with Tom Quiggin here on WWDB 860 AM. Mr. Quiggin has a very large announcement to share with us this morning coming from Canada. But first, let's describe a little bit of who he is and the work that he's done. Tom Quiggin has over 30 years of practical experience in security and intelligence matters and is qualified as a court expert in the reliability of intelligence as evidence and on terrorism. Uh, Mr. Quiggin has testified in, in quite a few amount of trials, and this is based on his practical experience 
including a variety of intelligence positions for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the Canadian Armed Forces, the United Nations Protection Force in Yugoslavia, Citizen and Immigration Canada, and many more. He recently published a report exposing Islamic Relief of Canada and is the author of Seeing the Invisible, National Security Intelligence in an Uncertain Age. Tom, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for the invite to WWDB 860 AM. Thank you for coming on today. And a little bit north of our border, you have some big news coming out of an effort that's taken you months to put together. Can you tell our listeners about what you're involved in? Yes, basically it's this. Um, as a court expert on terrorism and as someone who has worked for the intelligence and police community for over 30 years, I've submitted a official request to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to investigate politicians in Canada who appear to be directing money to Islamic Relief Canada, knowing full well that that money will find its way to Islamic Relief Exam, uh, sorry, Islamic Relief Worldwide, and then on to both extremist and terrorist groups such as Hamas. Um, terrorism funding in Canada through charities has been going on for years. This is nothing new. I'm not exposing anything new there. Groups like Irfan, for instance, had sent over $14 million in cash to Hamas before they were declared to be a terrorist entity here in Canada itself. What is different now, though, and what has changed in the last two years or three years, basically, under the government of Prime Minister Trudeau, is rather than having external people take advantage of government-registered charities, what we're seeing is members of parliament are now directing taxpayers' money to a federally registered charity, which they know full well is forwarding money on to extremism and terrorism. So this is quite a difference from the past, and the fact that it's people inside government directing the money, I think, is the fact that's really significant. So to give our listeners a little bit of background on Islamic Relief, we've had Sam Westrop, the author of a similar report covering their activities here in the United States from our organization. Let's look at their background. Islamic Relief is one of the largest Islamic charities in the world. Founded in 1984, Islamic Relief today maintains branches and offices in over 20 countries and has reported franchise-wide income in the hundreds of millions of dollars. As uh, Tommy just pointed out, Western governments provide a significant portion of this income. Now, we also have in the United States something like $80 million from our taxpayers and other Western governments that has gone to IR in the last 10 years including $700,000 from the U.S. government. IR is considered to be a prominent Islamist institution closely tied with the Muslim Brotherhood network and branches, like we said beforehand, in over 20 countries. It's been labeled as a terror organization by, I believe, Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, and the nation-state of Israel. What are Canadian politicians doing mixing with this organization? Uh, it's hard to say, but I mean, the Liberal Party of Canada has suffered from political entryism. That is to say, there are a number of members of parliament now who've gone on the public record, uh, such as supporting Sharia law. Uh, for instance, the Honorable Omar Elgabra, a member of parliament from Mississauga, who was up till just recently our ju junior foreign minister. And we also have like the uh, member of parliament, Ikra Khalid, also from Mississauga, who's on the record as saying she supports uh, Sharia law and says she supports a Salafist form 
of Islam. So this uh, this problem is not new. It's not uh, something that just popped up yesterday. This has been gone going within the government now for several years. But what I think is most fascinating, as you mentioned, the, the amount of money here is not like insignificant. It's millions of dollars are at hand. So, for instance, the government of Canada just directed $1.5 million to the International Humanitarian Aid Program. Uh, and that $1.5 million goes to Islamic Relief Canada. We also sent about $20 million to the Myanmar Relief Fund, and it looks like Islamic Relief will get, be getting the lion's share of that. Islamic Relief got $3 million over three years uh, through the Canadian Aid to Iraq program, and they are getting tens of thousands of dollars through the Humanitarian Assistance Program. Most interestingly, though, this year, just a couple of months ago, Ikra Khalid, a member of parliament, announced that $23 million of Canadian taxpayers' money would be going to an anti-Islamophobia program here in Canada. And she only named two organizations that will be getting the money. One is a Boys and Girls Club in Mississauga. The other one, Islamic Relief Canada. So it looks like they will be getting the lion's share of that money as well. Now, so, so what this, I this, think this is... Isn't just, if I could just uh, uh, ask you the question here for a second about this $23 million allocation. Uh, an Islamophobia prevention campaign sounds like a government-funded attempt to censor individuals in your country. Now, I don't, I don't think many people are familiar with the M304, I believe, was the resolution. Maybe I got the number wrong in Canada. But is there not an effort to try to stamp out free speech in your country? And now it seems uh, like a entity which has been connected to overseas terror activity, whether it be financing, logistics, supporting DAWA programs, which is sort of the, uh, the social welfare arm of terror organizations, is now involved in trying to censor individuals like you in your own country. So it's not just overseas. You're feeling the threat of Islamic relief at home. Uh, yes, that's exactly the point. The M103 anti-Islamophobia motion, as it was called, started out as a simple parliamentary uh, motion that had no legal weight. But it was then turned into a series of hearings, which then had a series of papers produced. And now they've decided to put $23 million into this. And yes, M103... Uh, motion here and the movement behind it is very much concerned with silencing any criticism of Islamists in Canada and of course as part of a much larger program that you're familiar with in America in the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Belgium, etc. So yeah, it's very much a part of that. Uh, what's truly disturbing though is we go through the list here and look at the politicians who are behind this. It's people like the Honorable Ahmed Hussain, our Minister of uh, Immigration and Refugees. He's a key driver in sending money. Omar Algebra, as I mentioned, has actually stood up in Parliament and supported Islamic Relief Canada, and he's gone to a number of their fundraisers to, to lend his credibility to that. The Honorable Christia Freeland, uh, our Member of Parliament and Foreign Minister, uh, her ministry has been sending money to Islamic Relief. The Honorable Mary Claude Bebo from International Development has done this. And most disturbingly, Prime Minister Trudeau actually does volunteer work for Islamic Relief Canada. And he has pictures of himself, you know, with the sleeves rolled up, humping boxes and filling them with, you know, aid supplies and all this sort of stuff. And he also did a promotional video for them. So what I've done with all of this, I basically packaged it all together, put it into a 132-page report, sourced the thing uh, with a series of sources which are suitable for evidence in the Federal Court of Canada or in the Criminal Court of Canada, and presented all this to the Commissioner of the RCMP saying, 
somebody in the government of Canada needs to take a long, hard look at why are we funding this organization, which multiple other countries and organizations claim is funding terrorism, including organizations here in Canada. And I've also pointed out that funding terrorism in Canada, of course, is a criminal offense if the group in question is listed as a terrorist group. And in fact, some of this money is winding up in the hands of Hamas, which is sort of globally listed by a lot of folks as a terrorist group. Now, you mentioned earlier that various other countries and organizations have looked at Islamic Relief with jaundiced eyes and said, what's going on with these guys? And of course, at the top of that list is the United Arab Emirates. They've listed them as a terrorist front group. Bangladesh has said they don't want Islamic Relief operating in their area because they fear the money goes to extremism rather right, than they're, aid. They're afraid it, that the Rohingya population will be radicalized by Islamic yes, Relief I mean, officials. Yes, and and, yeah, and even, more than that, there's evidence of IR partnering with Jamata Islami, a notorious Islamist party in Bangladesh, responsible, some of its officials being responsible for the genocide in 1971 and the assassination of Bangladesh's founder in 1975. Yes, so I mean, you know, the Bangladeshis are quite serious about this. They know trouble when they see it and they don't want these guys. Israel, of course, has made it clear they think Islamic relief in a variety of forms is funding Hamas. But where this gets really interesting is HSBC Bank has cut all their links to Islamic Relief worldwide, citing terrorism regulations. UBS Bank of Switzerland, which is a fairly serious outfit, has cut their ties to Islamic Relief, saying the same thing. In other words, we're worried about terrorism. The Charities Aid Foundation in the United Kingdom has a list of 400 Islamic charities that they support that do business in over 50 different countries worldwide. But they pulled Islamic relief off that list. Again, terrorism funding concerns. And here in Canada, the uh, Financial Post used to have Islamic Relief Canada on their 25 best operated charities in Canada. But again, they pulled them off that list saying that, you know, hey, uh, these guys appear to be funding terrorism. It's a bit of a problem. Now, even more interesting, we've had testimony in the Canadian Senate by Lorenzo Vadino who just outright said, look, there's a bunch of Muslim Brotherhood front groups operating in Canada. Uh, the Muslim Association of Canada is one. Uh, and one of the other ones he pointed out directly was Islamic Relief Canada. Now, so for, for anyone who doesn't know who, who Lorenzo is, he's the director of the counter-extremism project at George Washington University. Yes, and I think he's, I mean, it's always difficult to say these things, but he's probably the world's expert on the Muslim Brotherhood as it exists outside of the Middle East. Uh, very, very well qualified, very well read, and one of the top scholars in the field. So him testifying so, in the Canadian so, so Senate Tom, was a bit of an eye-opener. I, I, I have to give, as, as much as it abhors me to, Islamic Relief a, a fair shake in responding. And what I'd like to do is to read a portion of their response to the Middle East forums, uh, allegations against the organization, and I think it would cover a lot of what's in your report, too, and I'd like you to respond to that. Is that okay? Yes. Okay. They, uh, they say here that Islamic Relief has an outstanding track record of responding to natural disasters and conflicts and alleviating poverty around the world. They go on to say that over 500 audits of Islamic Relief's programs and offices have been carried out in the past decade to the satisfaction of regulators, partners, and auditors. They also offer added reassurance by using specialist software to screen every major donor, employee, volunteer, trustee, contractor, supplier, bank, local partner organization, and cash beneficiary 
against over 540 lists of prescribed entities and individuals published by law enforcement and intelligence agencies and governmental and regulatory bodies worldwide, including the U.S. Office of Foreign Asset Controls, the, the U.S. Uh, Treasury Department's uh, anti-terror list, and Israeli lists. The latest attack on Islamic relief by the Middle East form is wrong, misleading, and motivated only to do harm. If uh, they were to say the same thing about the Quicken Report, how would you respond? Uh, well, first, just let me say this is exactly the same sort of the things the Islamic Society of North America was saying in Canada until they had two charities revoked here in Canada for funding terrorism. This was exactly the same sort of stuff Irfan was saying here in Canada until they got their charity revoked for funding terrorism, and eventually they are even listed as a terrorist entity here in Canada, which is really weird. Now, to be fair to Islamic Relief, I think we should say that they do do some good community work. Much like the Muslim Brotherhood, much like Hezbollah, much like Hamas, they do recognize that popular support is necessary. So, yeah, they do provide actual aid in some actual disasters. So that part's not its question. It's not like 100% of the money disappears down the tubes into extremism. So that part is actually fair. But let me also point out that a number of these organizations claim how great they are right till they get busted. Now, Islamic Relief Worldwide in particular said in 2014 an independent investigation had found no evidence of any links with terrorism. And it also told the charity Overwatch body in the United Kingdom this has been done. The reports were there. Everybody agreed with it. But when you dig down through it, this is fascinating. The umbrella group of 13 UK charities called the DEC, which approved of this audit, didn't actually release the audit report. Nobody knows who did the audit. And the people who agreed that the audit was good and proved that there was no problem with it uh, were people who were former senior officials of, guess what, Islamic Relief Worldwide. <laughs> so this happens on occasions. They'll set up an audit and say, look, an independent auditor you know, we, we were upset by these accusations, so we decided to have an outside auditor come in and look at stuff, and they've come out and cleared us. So one of the people that cleared them uh, was the, a former chief executive officer of the IRW who sits on this uh, oversight body. And the other guy was uh, uh, formerly the CEO of Islamic Relief as well. So two former CEOs of Islamic Relief say they've read a report written by an independent auditor that we're not allowed to see that says Islamic Relief Worldwide is really a bunch of good guys. So uh, I got two problems, I guess. One is some of the audits are just plain fake. Uh, and the other audits, I'd like to be fair here in Canada, uh, if the auditors aren't looking for extremism connections, they're not going to find them. So what happens here in Canada typically is Islamic Relief Canada collects the money here they send it to Islamic Relief Worldwide, which then carries on and sends the money elsewhere. So the same can be said for Islamic Relief America, Islamic Relief Germany, Islamic Relief uh, Belgium, Netherlands, France, Australia, etc. So yeah, a lot of those audits will show that the money is clean there, but what they're not doing is following the money trail to its ultimate destination, which of course is the real problem. So I, I think that this might be an opportunity if anyone in Islamic Relief, whether it be the U.S., Canadian, or any of its other branches around the West, rest of the world, is listening to this radio cast right now. I invite them on the program. Uh, Tom, we'll have you back on too. You lay out the allegation, let them respond, and let's let the evidence speak for itself. And I also challenge Islamic Relief to make these audits public. 
so that individuals and investigators like you and the Canadian government and the American government and other entities that are concerned about Islamic Relief's activities are able to review these documents to see if their statements hold any water. Now, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience before we have to move on to the next guest about your petition to the Canadian federal authorities concerning Canadian politicians' involvement with this organization? Yeah, I mean, if folks want to look up uh, a little more on this, the Quiggin Report podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Patreon, and all that stuff. And if you look up episode 38 on how uh, Canadian taxpayers' money is funding terrorism, there's uh, much more background there. Also on Patreon, if you go to the Quiggin Report uh, site on Patreon, you can see the full 132-page report. Uh, so if folks want to see the actual evidence and the actual statements, uh, it's all there as a matter of public record. All right, Tom Quiggin, thank you for your fascinating analysis this morning. We look forward to having you on in the future. Cheers. Thanks very much. After this, Seth Fransman. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. We're back on Middle East Forum Central I'm very excited for our next guest. Seth Fransman is a journalist and analyst concentrating on the Middle East. He is the opinion editorial editor and an analyst on Middle East affairs at the Jerusalem Post, and his work has appeared at the National Interest, the Hill, the National Review, and the Moscow Times. Moreover, we find that he is the founder of the Middle East Center for Reporting and Analysis, along with Jonathan Spire, and both of them are Middle East Forum Fellows. Seth, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining us this morning. I'm in New York City. I believe you're uh, calling in live from Jerusalem. That's right, yes. And a little bit farther to your east, we now have a new Iraqi president and a prime minister designate. The uh, former, Bahram Saleh, a Kurd, and the latter, a Shia Islamist, Abdul Mahdi. What can you tell us about the new leaders of Iraq? Well, the new leaders of Iraq, I think the general narrative that's been put out, certainly by Washington and a lot of major media, is that 
this is a kind of moderate team that is more pro-American than was uh, expected. So because what was expected to happen, which is that a much, a very, you know, the much more pro-Iranian parties um, who did very well in the elections would put forward one of their candidates and we would end up with what they would say, like more hardline and more pro-Iranian government in Baghdad. So it's kind of a question of low expectations because the low expectations was that it would be an extremely pro-Iranian government I think the end of the day is that the the government that will take shape is a little bit more balanced, but it certainly cannot be described as as uh, pro Western or pro American. I think that obviously, as you said, the the person who will be prime minister ha- has an Islamist background. He he lived in Iran during the Islamic Revolution in the eighties. Although prior to that, I mean, when he was younger, he was more secular and interested in socialism and communism. So his his background is is complicated. And he's seen as a kind of economic pragmatist and not um, not too ideological. And Baham Saleh, the, who's the Kurdish president, he's also seen as someone who's basically uh, you know, more pro-Western, more pro-American. But because he's from the PUK, the Kurdish party that rules Soleimania, which is closer in proximity to Iran, his party is considered to be more, more connected to Iran than the other major Kurdish party, which is the KDP. So I think that's kind of where we are in Iraq. And I think from Washington's perspective, it's a question of whether or not, you know, Baghdad can be convinced to be a little bit more tough, for instance, on Iranian-backed militias and Iranian entrenchment and encroachment. So speaking about foreign influence over the, the country of Iraq, you have Turkish soldiers, which are right now occupying parts of Iraq in the north. You have the Iranians shelling Kurdish camps on the Iraqi side of their border. You have Iranian-backed militias throwing out uh, the American uh, American employees at the consulate in Basra. You have the Saudis, who I think financed Maktoul al-Sadr's campaign. He is the uh, individual who took first place in the Iraqi parliamentary elections. And of course, you have the concerns of the Jordanians. What is the way in which other countries, like Iran, like Turkey, like the Saudis, are looking at these two designates now in place? Well, I think, you know, the Saudis have a lot of their own issues, right? They're fighting in, in Yemen. They have their Qatar problems. They have problems with Turkey. But, you know, the Saudis patched up relations with Iraq last year. So they're interested, I think, and Washington is interested in having them invest more in the Kurdish region and perhaps in eastern Syria. And obviously the Saudis do not want another Nuri al-Maliki or a really extreme pro-Iranian uh, regime in Baghdad, and they don't want Shia militias on their borders. That's kind of what I think they're looking at. I think the, the real I think the real question here is how how exactly can the United States or other countries that care about you know the Iranian encroachment untangle the Iraqi government from the fact that the Shiite militias that were raised to fight ISIS have been officially incorporated into the security forces? Um, you know, it's a little bit like incorporating the KKK into the National Guard or something in the United States. So. It's, and it's unclear once once the laws were passed in Baghdad uh, two years ago or so, and once they were incorporated and starting to get salaries, you know, how do you disentangle these sectarian Shiite militias from the security forces? And I don't think that Washington has an answer for that, and I know that Congress wants to sanction individual militias. But I think that's the real question, because obviously in the Kurdish region, you have a, a more pro-American, uh, slightly more secular obviously more democratic area of Iraq that's more stable. But the rest of Iraq, I think, is a really big question mark. 
Now, focusing on the Kurds, as you point out, that it's a more stable entity, but they did have their own share of uh, conflict with other Iraqi parties, first with the uh, referendum for independence that took place in September of last year, um, or not September of last year, but earlier on this year. And you also had the uh, the loss, I believe, of Kirkuk or Tikrit, where there was a, a Kurdish forces there from their uh, initial outset on trying to kick ISIS out of that area. And then even beyond that, you have conflicts between, as you pointed out before, the Kurdish Democratic Party and the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. What is the future of the three northern provinces of Iraq, especially as right now they're entangled with U.S. forces to their west in northeast Syria, Turkish forces to their north, Shia militias to their south, and Iran to their east? I mean, this is this is really the key question. I think that you know that that small Kurdish region, as you said, it has it has so many different problems, so many different uh, divisions, but it really is kind of a hinge on which I think we should see um, the region moving in a sense because it's a because it's between Turkey and Iran and the Shia militias. It's really a key, I think, to this entire kind of puzzle of Baghdad, and also the key. To the U.S. want if the U.S. wants to confront Iran, that's a place to confront Iran because you have, for instance, the ballistic missiles that you mentioned that were fired at Kurdish groups. I think the most important thing is for Washington to probably reduce this idea that it has to force and shoehorn the Kurdish region into supporting Baghdad, which is kind of what Washington has been doing. And I think it needs to deal with Erbil almost directly, and you know relate to the Kurds on their own in terms of what they want. I don't think the Kurds necessarily say they want independence, but I don't think that's something that's going to happen. But I think in terms of economics and in terms of security, the Kurdish region is really a key. And I think that instead of trying to always force the Kurds to be to be Iraqi nationalists, which hasn't really worked, I saw that the consulate in Erbil put out a tweet today telling the Kurdish region to have quote-unquote national pride in Iraq. Um, I think that that's something that Washington has to consider, and I think it's important to keep that region stable and find a way to patch up any differences that might be there in terms of the PUK and KDP. So you are stationed in Israel, but you also often cover Syria, Iraq. You travel to these areas. Let's get a little bit more uh, on the personal side. How did you get into this line of work, and what motivates you to continue your investigations that appear often on, on headlines across the globe? Well, I've been based in the Middle East uh, since I did my PhD in 2010 or so. I, I came to the region in 2004 or 5, and I used to do a lot of work studying Palestinian and Israel-Palestinian conflict, and I eventually realized that I was you know, kind of growing beyond that and interested in what's happening in the region. And I think especially the rise of Islamic State in 2014 when there was the genocide in northern Iraq, and I saw all these images of people being rounded up and murdered, I decided that, you know, this is something I have to go document and I want to go see. So I went to Iraq that year. And, you know, I think from since that point, I felt a real responsibility to do more in terms of documenting what's taking place and the major changes in the region, because the region is going through, I think, a, a massive amount of changes in the last few years, equivalent to what happened during the time of the end of the Ottoman Empire in 1918. So with your personal interest in this, and, and I think also with your background and with your PhD, uh, being an American operating in the region now, being an Israeli focusing there, let's move back to the policy side. And, and I'd like to ask you, 
How do you think Iraq's changing attitudes and policies towards Iran, and maybe, I'm not saying that there's a relationship between the Iraqis and Israel, but how do you think Iraq's relationship with the U.S. will be affected by this, this new government? Well, I think Iraq, you know, has to kind of decide where it's going to go because, you know, after the U.S. invasion from, say, 2003 to 2005, the Americans were really heavy on the ground and Iraq had a new constitution. And then you had this insurgency and then you had the surge and then you had the Americans basically drawing down. And what America left behind was uh, a Shiite pro-Iranian strongman. And that was during the Obama years when I think it's quite clear the Obama administration was trying to curry favor with Iran for the Iran deal. And so we can see the fact that the Obama administration was standing by and allowing this kind of Shiite strongman to take over Iraq. They thought that would bring stability. Well, what they found out under ISIS was that actually there's no stability. In fact, Iraq is being eaten away from within. And what we've seen since the election is also that Iraq um, has a lot of chaotic problems. For instance, in Basra, even though Basra has all this oil and lots of money, the infrastructure and the water, the basic services are polluted and destroyed. So I think it's, um, it's very important that we, I mean, the Iraqis, in the end of the day, they have to decide. They have to decide what exactly their country is going to be. I think they have a kind of limited democracy that sort of functions, and Iraq has a chance after ISIS to do a lot more. But I think we can't, in the end of the day, you can't just give them lots of money and lots of tanks and expect that all of that will make them do X or Y. Because we've seen that that doesn't work. I mean, how many how many billions of dollars have been wasted on the Iraqi army and training it again and again? I mean, I think at least we're seeing the what second or third iteration of the American trained Iraqi army. Right. So that can't go on forever. I mean, you know, that's that's kind of where we are. Right. But I, I think that after so much death and destruction in that country, whether it be in uh, internecine violence between Sunni and Shia, whether it be the Kurds trying to protect their own autonomous areas or this uh, ISIS influx that took place for three or four years, you now have an Iraq that from 2003 until today is a hallowed-out version of its former self. You would think that the priority for Mahdi and Saleh would be to rebuild Iraq's destroyed infrastructure, re-improve its weak economy, to eject foreign forces, maybe potentially even including in the United States, and to try to reassert itself. I mean, this is not Saddam's Iraq. I'm, I'm not trying to go back in that direction. But... I think that a successful Iraqi politician, especially even somebody like Sadr, who promised to rebuild the country for all Iraqis, would have a little bit more buy-in from the rest of his country. Uh, how long is it going to take to get this country back to not necessarily a level of normalcy, but to have its universities operate, its schools open, its infrastructure work, to have palatable water? What direction is the country taking to, to get back on track? I mean, I think the, the kind of point you raised about Sadr is a perfect point here. So Sadr, uh, Muqtad al-Sadr came in first. Muqtad al-Sadr used to run a militia that used to target Americans, right? But now supposedly he's a Iraqi nationalist. What? Yeah, that's right. So he, he now poses as an Iraqi nationalist. I mean, I have no doubt he is an Iraqi nationalist. That's what drove him to fight the Americans. So he says he's an Iraqi nationalist. He ostensibly is now um, more tough on Iran and closer to the Saudis, which is fine. But what has what is actually Sadr done now in terms of the coalition building? His party is not going to take the prime ministership. He doesn't even want it. He's basically said, I give the government a year to kind of come up with certain solutions and solve the corruption and other issues, 
And if they don't do it, then I'm going to kind of overthrow the government or I'm going to pull out of this coalition or whatever. So he himself isn't even taking basic responsibility for forming a government. It's like, it's like if someone wins the presidential election in America and then says, you know what? Actually, I'll let the other party run America while I watch. <laughs> I just, you know, at the end of the day, we, we, uh, we, whether it's America or Europe or wherever, at the end of the day, you can't, it's just impossible to decide for these, this, uh, this kind of very complicated politics. I mean, Iraq is not a simple story, right? It has, it has Sunni parties, it has Shiite parties, it has Kurdish parties. It's one of the more complex political systems, perhaps, um, of any democracy in the world in, in some ways. So, it's not easy to see how all this works together. And I think that's why, for instance, in the Kurdish region in 2015 and 16, during the war in ISIS, people were saying, yeah, Iraq is just a failed state. And I think even National Security Advisor John Bolton previously had written a piece at the New York Times saying, well, why don't we just you know, let, let Iraq fall apart and let there be a Sunni stand and a Shia stand and a Kurdistan? So people have certainly floated those ideas. And Iraqis then see that as some sort of a conspiracy to break up their country. Now, I don't want to give any credence to, to where, or credit to where it's due or credence to an idea that I disagree with. But do you remember Joe, Joel Biden's plan? We have to create the Kurdistan and the Shia stand and the Sunni stand that he came up with about 15 years ago, right on the uh, precipice of the invasion of Iraq by George Bush. Right. I mean, I, I think that also Bolton has supported that, right? Right, right. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's maybe an area of rare agreement between Republicans and Democrats in today's uh, charged political atmosphere. But, uh, Seth Fransman, thank you very much for joining us this morning. I hope that we can have you on again. Well, thank you so much. And can you tell us about how to get to your, uh, your organization's uh, uh, writings for, for MECRA, for MECRA? Sure. If you just go on midicenter.org, or you put, it, put in all those words, a MIDI Center for Reporting and Analysis, you'll find our webpage. You can also follow us on Facebook, and I'd also recommend following us on Twitter. I think that on Facebook is most interesting because we're posting articles every day or a few days, sometimes video and pictures. We just had a guy who went up into the mountains of the kind of Iran-Iraq border with some of the Kurdish opposition groups that are fighting the IRGC. So there's a lot of interesting stuff on Facebook. And definitely check us out online and, and follow some of the fellows are also online on Twitter and things like that. So you can follow us all individually. And I, I really encourage any of our listeners to not just read, to not just digest the information that Seth and, and his fellows are putting out, but also to support the organization if you feel so uh, moved to. Seth, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Bye. Next, after these messages, I encourage our listeners to call in at 1-888-329-3306. Again, 1-888-329-3306. We have about 10 minutes left to answer questions regarding these two topics or anything else that's on your mind regarding the Middle East or Islam. 1-888-329-3306. Back after these messages. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. 
Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. WWDB 860 AM. Two fascinating segments today. One with Tom Quiggan, intelligence expert from Canada, and two with Seth Fransman, the op-ed editor of the Jerusalem Post. So while we were able to cover domestic Islamism and also a little bit of Iraq, Turkey, Iran, and the rest of the region, I would like us to focus on a case coming out of Turkey. This is the alleged murder of a Washington Post and Saudi journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, who on um, uh, a few days ago had entered the Saudi consulate in Istanbul and did not come out. According to RFERL radio, the Turkish officials that have been investigating a case believe that Khashoggi was killed at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. These are allegations that are denied by Saudi Arabia. At a press conference, the president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, was quoted as saying, they have lots of cameras. If he'd left the place, why don't they prove it? We're not going to let it go. Khashoggi left Saudi Arabia last year, saying he feared retribution for his growing criticism of Saudi policy in the Yemen war and its crackdown on dissent. Now, I think that this case of a um, Saudi journalist entering into Saudi sovereign territory, albeit within Turkey itself, is something that is not going to go away. The crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, has to be very careful in his effort to try to mitigate any criticisms that may come against him from the West or from his other Arab partners, especially in the wake of his attempts to modernize and reform the Saudi economy. On one hand, he has the specter of Iran knocking at his door, whether it being across the Persian Gulf, in Iraq, in Yemen, with other Iranian-sponsored terror entities in former Saudi spheres of influence, be it uh, Lebanon or other countries throughout the rest of the region. And he also has to worry about dissent at home who are opposing his modernization programs, whether it allow, allowing women to drive, whether it being that the liberalization of the Saudi economy by introducing a tax and trying to diversify it from being a hydrocarbon resource-based economy to one which is moving more in the direction of being a services and knowledge-based economy. And I think that if he is trying to extend the long arm of Saudi Arabian discipline to dissidents that are overseas, he is better to take that criticism in stride and to allow the Saudi Arabian government's reforms speak for itself than to try to enact retribution in countries that are outside of Saudi Arabia's borders, especially even more than its neighbors. Such a brazen effort 
to silence a critic of Saudi Arabia is something that will not portend well for him trying to go for him being Crown Prince uh, Salman to to garner support for Saudi efforts uh, uh, to have a better image of their country. Now, if you had to choose between facing off against Qatar and Yemen and the Houthis and the Iranians and going after one dissident who could ruin all of your plans, it's better to encourage these individuals to feel as if though they're protected and not feel threatened by the might of Saudi Arabia. Now, another Turkish story that came up, which uh, I think deserves more attention but is not getting that much in Western media, is the current um, situation of the Turkish economy. As part of a probe into suspected price gouging after a currency crisis pushed the Turkish inflation of the lira to a 13-year high, the trade ministry of Turkey said on Monday that it had asked 114 companies for explanations of price increases after inspecting more than 69,000 products at nearly 4,000 companies. The move comes after President Erdogan last week called on Turks to report unusual price hikes in shops saying it was the government's responsibility to raid the inventories of stores if necessary. This is looks like, you know, price gouging is one thing, but the government of Turkey trying to um, steer its economy by taking over its central bank, by encouraging foreign businesses to do business in lira rather than in foreign currencies, will not be a good end for President Erdogan's economic reform efforts. The reason why the Turkish economy is in the doldrums right now is directly connected to Turkey's illiberal policies. It has put more than 100,000 people in jail after the attempted coup in July of 2016. It has banned foreigners from trying to do business in Turkey. It has fired professors, engineers, journalists, businessmen. The cream of the crop of the Turkish economic influence is no longer in places because of Erdogan's fear that they were part of something that he may have well very concocted himself. And more than that, we had the story last week of an alleged attempt by a Turkish national to enter the compound of Fatullah Gulen, Erdogan's sworn enemy that Erdogan blames for being behind the coup attempt in July of 2016. And after the incursion into Gulen's compound, if it was not for a diligent guard who fired a warning shot, we may have seen, just like the Saudis trying to interfere in Turkey, the Turks trying to interfere in American domestic politics by going after someone here. Now, it's really rich for the Turks to be able to complain about extraterritorial intervention of trying to bring domestic politics to their, their, their allies, or at least trying to enact domestic policies in Turkey with their allies, when we've seen Turkey attempt to kidnap followers of the Gulenist movement in Montenegro, in Pakistan, and in other Muslim countries throughout the rest of the Middle East and beyond. So on one hand, Erdogan is saying, Saudis, how dare you intervene in instances of our uh, uh, protected individuals, in this case, a Saudi journalist. And I'm not excusing anything that happened to that journalist. If he was murdered in the Saudi consulate, that's a crime that has to be investigated. And it should be condemned to the highest level by Western governments and anyone else. But beyond anything, the Turks are more than hypocritical considering that they do the same exact actions against their alleged 
uh, dissidents, Turkish dissidents, by trying to kidnap and kill people that they say are responsible for a coup, which may have actually originated with Erdogan himself. Last in the news, I'd like us to focus on Israel and its current, uh, uh, most recent, rather, issue with the Palestinians. Two Israelis, a 29-year-old mother of an 18-year-old boy and a 35-year-old father of three children, were murdered by a Palestinian in one of the last instances of economic coexistence in the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, by a 23-year-old Palestinian terrorist who is now being harbored by other Palestinians. In this case of the latest wave of violence, cycle after cycle of innocence are being killed on the Israeli side by known wolf Palestinian terrorists. And what I found really ironic was that the Palestinian Authority, on one hand, said that they would try to apprehend the terrorists or at least cooperate with Israeli security forces to find the individual responsible for slaying these two innocent co-workers of his. But on the other, the Palestinian Authority has a infrastructure set up to not just influence the individuals who may be committing these attacks by inciting them in media, by encouraging this curriculum in their schools, by basically breeding Palestinians that are being brought up on Jew hatred. But after an attack is commiserated and this terrorist is either captured and put into an Israeli prison or killed, his family will receive from the very Palestinian Authority that is allegedly assisting Israel more than $1 million in payments for committing his attack against Israeli civilians. We're going to end the uh, program today by thanking uh, Lisa Barbunas, our production assistant, by having uh, Delaney Janchik, our other uh, production assistant. And I encourage everyone to check out our writings at emmyforum.org. Hope you'll join us next week. This is Greg Roman on Middle East Forum Century Radio, WWDB 860 AM. Have a great day.